Till the ribbons in my head Look far too girlish for the gray Till we put our hearts away Says it's time I'd rather not look foolish Maybe I'm too old to do this But we don't get to choose our pride And yours might not be mine Cause if we come too late To all we love By the Welcome to this week's edition of the Wispy Mop Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series. I'm your host, Todd, middle initial C. Walker. Yes, that's right. It is me. And we have been listening to the song titled If We Come Too Late, which is a new recording, studio recording, by a young lady who 
hails out of the Baltimore, Maryland area named Heather Aubrey Lloyd. She is a partner with Rob Hinkle in Amy, and sometimes they perform as a duo, sometimes with their full band. It really depends on the venue. But let me read you a little bit about Heather before we chat with her. She has won numerous awards. Uh, she was an award finalist in the 2018 No Depression Magazine Songwriting um, Award. She was the 2018 Falcon Ridge Folk Festival Most Wanted Artist. I love that title. 2018 National Women's Music Festival Emerging Artist. The 2017 Telluride Troubadour Top 4. And she is a grand prize winner of the prestigious Bernard Ebb Songwriting Award in 2019. She's well-traveled. She and Rob have traveled all over the United States. Everything from bait shops to clothing optional venues and a lot in between. And she's on the phone with me right now. Heather, thank <laughs> you for joining me. You have quite the resume. Oh, thank you. I, I appreciate its its diversity. I um, I don't know that I could ever be somebody who just played, you know, very nice concert halls or dive bars. Like I, I like being limber. I like making sure all of that is still in me. <laughs> Well, the the one thing you have always shown the audience, whether you're performing solo at the Weinberg Center, which you were one of the first performers for the Maryland Folk um, performance that Tom Cole had put on. Gosh, that was just yeah. before uh, COVID. Yep. <laughs> and you've also opened in a sold out show for who? Oh, <laughs> Gordon Lightfoot. Yeah, one of my favorite all-time performers. What a, a true honor that must have been for you and it, fun. It really, really was. I mean, we took a long time to get there because uh, I was booked for that. Oh, uh, I want to say right as things looked like they were starting to to come back. And then the very day the show was supposed to happen, the the band came down with COVID. They called me that morning and said, we we have to cancel it. Um, so I had people like literally driving from other states that I had to call and be like, nope, nope, turn around, <laughs> you know. Um, and I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, what if I don't get a chance to play this gig? You know, a gig like that, especially at this time in his life, in my life, you know, that comes once. And so I was so grateful when it was rescheduled and we finally got a chance to do it. And yeah, that audience was just wonderful. And he he and his wife were both so lovely to me. Well, you know, it's it, what you said. You don't know if you're going to get another chance because he is in his 80s mm -hmm. and um, hasn't had the best of health over the past 20 to 25 years. And, you know, as, as a big a fan of his as I am, someone had expressed to me, you know, gosh, you're probably going to go and, and see him. Right. And I said, no. And they said, why mm -hmm. not? And I said, well, I don't want to see him as he is now. I want to remember mm -hmm. him always as he was through videos. And, and, you know, the when I saw him live back in the 1970s, I kind of wish now in, re in retrospect that I had gone just to say I did, mm -hmm. um, but I didn't. And actually knowing how I procrastinate, it would have been sold out before I ever hit the button. So. <laughs> now that brings up something. You are an incredibly busy young lady. <laughs> yes. <laughs> how do you I, I, fit everything in your day, week, month? How, how do you do it? I used to teach. Um, I mean, I, I taught, um, uh, I was a substitute teacher. You know, I, I did what I, I like to refer to as the maternity leave shuffle. Uh, women who knew they were pregnant but didn't want to tell anybody yet because it was early would call me up and go, so what you doing around like 
April. And I would, <laughs> you know, don't tell anybody. But and so I would I would line up my sub jobs and then line my touring up around it, you know, because I did. I enjoyed education. And so it wasn't just um, it wasn't just a side hustle. It was a way to sort of express a part of myself and give back. But I actually didn't very frequently teach music or anything. What I most frequently taught was some variant of, of special education math. And one of the things that I most frequently tell my students that I have to remember to tell myself is you can't give a hundred percent of your effort to a hundred percent of your schedule a hundred percent of the time, you know, so true. You have to learn what can take a little bit of neglect and, and what you can, you know, what must be given your full attention, not forever, but for a moment, like, uh, to, Today, I have a laundry list like as long as possible that ends like in my my son, my stepson has a big jazz band concert tonight. So dinner's got to be on the table at a certain time and all of this stuff. And and so today, no, I'm a finely oiled machine, but I promise you most days it's not like that. <laughs> well, we, we will keep you as long as we can today. Uh, no oh, more. this is lovely. I haven't spoken to you, like I said, since the before time. <laughs> well, you know, the, um, the the one thing you have always been prior to and after immediately after a performance is real <laughs> the the one thing that has always intrigued me about what i want to classify as talented and popular performers whether they be movie stage or music is some are very i don't know if they're necessarily reclusive or quiet because they're nervous and they like to get inside their own head before they perform. But you have always been very real. And, you know, before going on stage, 10 minutes before, if I didn't know you were going on stage, I wouldn't have thought you were because you're just so normal all the time. (laughs) I I enjoy the show environment, you know, all of it. And, and I am, I'm a deeply introverted person, which often surprises people because I am, I am extroverted for the purposes of my job. Um, you know, I, I'm able to run extroversion in sprint and, and shows are that time, you know, I'm so grateful that anybody comes, you know, it's kind of like, you know, I get paid for this. Holy crap. You know? Um, (laughs) and so I am, I'm excited to see people. It's strange how, how, um, pandemic has changed that a little where now, I'm excited to pe- to see people, but I feel a little more awkward maybe than I used to just because it's like we've forgotten, you know, I've been I've been singing, you know, a couple of years, mostly live stream stuff like to a to, you know, a little tiny camera and a comments list that goes by too fast and you develop that muscle and it's a very different skill. And so coming back out of that into live show performance has been like more challenging than I expected. I think I'm doing okay. Cause at the, at the end of the day, yeah, I, I prize authenticity. I don't get up and run the same banter all the time. I, I really am, you know, having a conversation with people and that's the aspect of performance that I missed the most during pandemic. Well, you know, I was listening to Luthier on Luthier podcast the other day when I go to the gym and I'm on the treadmill for an hour, I like to listen to podcasts, whether it's one of my own previous shows um, just to see what I did wrong and need to improve on. Or I've tried to find other music podcasts and I'm a guitar guy. So Luthier on Luthier uh, is wonderful. And there was a, a, a builder, I guess it was two or three shows ago that I listened to. And he's also a performer and 
the the host was asking him, you know, what have you been doing doing during the quarantine time? And he said, doing a lot of live streaming, teaching that way, things like that. And he said, so are you going back on the road? And he basically said just what you did, that it's, he's gotten so used to doing that, he's almost apprehensive going back out in front of an audience because it is, it's, it's sort of like being a live performer for years and then you want to go into the studio, you finally do and you learn that you have to learn how to be a studio performer, which I find difficult. No, I agree. And I'm, I'm very much a creature of live performance. So I think, I think I would never, you know, jump ship completely into live streaming. I, I need an audience reaction. I, I had a crazy kind of situation coming right back from live streaming into live performance. The first the first live show I did in front of an audience indoors, because I did a lot of like outdoor stuff where I could pick it up. But the first one indoors was opening up for Buskin and Bateau. And the lighting sound guy came to me right before we started the show. And he said, how do you want it lit? And I said, what? And he said, do you want to see the audience? And my first thought was, oh, my God, there's going to be people. Yeah, I want to <laughs> see the audience. So he leaves it lit so I can see them. But it was a fully masked show. So oh, when gosh. I looked into the audience, it was a sea of surgical masks staring at me and, and very much autopsy. And I was the subject. Yeah. So like it's, it you was, know, stick them up. <laughs> oh, my God. It was unnerving. And and, you know, yes, yeah, so I was like, oh, yay, there's people. And, and yet it was this kind of very awkward, strange. But you you are. It's you're present for it. And it becomes part of the show. And we all laughed about it. And. And so, yeah, even under those circumstances where the initial shock kind of was like, whoops, <laughs> it becomes a part of you had to be there. There's something about the the sort of transience of live performance that I love. You know, you even the live streams, you can go back and watch. And, yeah, I post mortem them all the time to look for improvements or where I need to fix and, and change. But there's something about a truly live performance where you had to be there and you you leave it there. And I do. I love that. Well, because of COVID and we we're talking about live streaming and performing in front of a camera, you did something that was very unique. And I understand from kind of reading between the lines that it was difficult for you to put together because it was the first time you had ever done something like that. But you created that My Kinda Quarantiner um, video, which you have to put multiple screens, screens up. Um, you had to sing things two and three times, you might have lip synced to some of them. So you had a clean audio recording. I'm not sure how you did it, but you won an award for that, if I'm not mistaken, didn't you? Yeah, a couple different things, actually. I mean, please, for the love of God, let me never win, you know, best, you know, quarantine song, you know, or song about COVID ever again. Like, I do not need to win that award twice. <laughs> um, but I did. I won something through the Mid-Atlantic Song Contest about that. And then the video itself won something through Northeast Regional Folk Alliance. And and it was. It was definitely, uh, you know, uh, the times required me to learn things I had never done before. And so, yeah, I... You know, I had to do it in, in a very uh, low, low budget fashion. You know, I costumed myself from like Goodwill stuff and I set up my phone in a corner, you know, where I couldn't move the chair to ensure that I would sit back down in the same position every time. Um, 
And, uh, you know, I did all the video editing. I did all the recording for it because it was really uh, for a I do this yearly songwriting challenge. I talk about it a lot on stage because I love it so much. Um, this guy, Paul Lloyd, who's a local, uh, no relation, one L, um, he does this yearly songwriting thing that I refer to lovingly as the, the monkey songwriting contest. Uh, if he's seen you at like a festival or a gig or something, you get the invite. And I became aware of it because um, David Glazer, who I loved very much and who is not with us any longer, um, had written a song that was one of my favorites for this challenge. The challenge is you have to get monkey into the song and it's got a predetermined subject and five words you have to get in it. It's really a heady kind of exercise. And I was like, oh, man, the day I get the invite for this, it means I've arrived. And, and one day the invite came. And so you're pitted against these really exceptional songwriters like Brad Yoder and Victoria Vox. And I have been, you know, locked in an epic struggle for the top three spots for like the last seven years. And I love it because it brings out the best in you. And I've always worked well on a deadline. And so that song actually was one of the challenges. You had to write a positive song about lockdown. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. You know, I did not want to do this. But that that level of, you know, oh man, this is not a subject I want to write about sort of drives you to then think about it in a different way. And so I imagined this Andrews Sisters-esque kind of USO, very nearly propaganda-ish sort of uplifting number about this struggle we were all going through and it all just ran from there. And so when it came time to do the video, it made sense since I was all the voices to film something where I was all the voices. And it took me it took me about 20 hours to edit it because I was going from zero to 60. I had never done anything of that nature. And I tell people all the time, you too can make a great music video if you have, you know, 20 to 30 hours to spend on it. If not, pay somebody, pay somebody. <laughs> <laughs> well, how long did it take from when you first sat down pen in hand or on the computer, however you write your lyrics, until mm -hmm. you were satisfied with the final edit it's different for challenges like that versus when i write for myself um for that challenge they give you a month from the day you're assigned all of the materials to the day it's due and so regardless of how you feel about it it's like well this is what we're doing and it went through it went through two rights um the first right i thought i was actually going to do a, like a parody on like moonshiner you know because mm -hmm. i thought you know I, I, what I am, a quarantiner, uh, I've been here for three long weeks, you know, I go down to that bathroom as opposed to the bar room, yep. you know, the idea of the smallness of the house, but I, um, I couldn't make it do what I wanted it to do. It was cute enough. I could still write that song. Um, but then all of a sudden this Andrew sisters thing really took hold. And once it did, you know, that suggests uh, a pattern and, and everything. And so, I had to throw away what I started with. So maybe that was the first two weeks. And then in the last two weeks took me maybe about, I guess, a couple of days to, to get the lyrics all in place. And then because it was going to be this big, you know, barbershop quartet vocal arrangement that I probably spent another two or three days, you know, grinding on and, and tweaking and fixing. And so, yeah, it, it was a full month process, but the active time to actually get what turned out probably was about a week. Now, did you record all the vocals prior to putting the video together or are you singing live on that? Because if you're lip singing, you're very, very close to the point where I would never know. Thank 
thank you. No, that's a lip synced video because I had to record it and submit it um, to the contest. And then afterward, I thought, you know, I bet it would be cute to make a video like this. And again, gave myself a deadline because the monkey contest happens in August and I finished the video by Valentine's Day. Um, and I really did. It was like a snap decision, right? About maybe end of January, beginning of February. I'm like, oh, you know what? I should make something out of this because I thought this will only be relevant for so long and mm -hmm. I should capitalize on its relevance while I can. And that, again, it's the deadline. It drove me to finish it by a certain time. Well, I know many people who have either seen it or will and, and tell people how they can find it, actually. Well, the easiest way, it's up on my website. My name is Heather Aubrey Lloyd, and my website is Heather Aubrey Lloyd. It's up on my YouTube, which is also Heather Aubrey Lloyd. And actually, No Depression featured it as well at one point in time. So it's it's pretty easy to find. There are no other Heather Aubrey Lloyds, I think, though there are many Heather Lloyds. <laughs> you know, I wondered, and I, I kind of figured it out fairly quickly, because I'd always known you as, as Heather Lloyd, and then all of a sudden I saw your name pop up with the middle middle name, and I thought, ah, wonder why she's doing that. And then I went, oh, of course, you know, you know, I have a couple other performers who all of a sudden started putting their middle name in. It's like mm -hmm. I put my middle initial in the, exactly. um, it's just to separate myself from everybody else. But now where did you record the, the audio for that? Did you do it at <laughs> in, home or in my dining room? <laughs> really? Now how, and I'm curious, and I know a lot of the listeners will be, what were you recording and using to record it? Oh, in the beginning, it was so funny because, of course, we all got locked down with whatever we had. And it was the great MacGyvering of gear that was never intended for these purposes. And so I didn't even have uh, right around before pandemic, I didn't even have an interface that would have gotten into my computer. And so uh, my husband had this old like Alesis, you know, two channel, but en enough that it had a you know, a, a USB out. And I, I hooked that up to my live mixer that I would normally have used for my live shows. And that just gave me something I could pass through and get into my computer. And I didn't even have a great DAW. I did it with Audacity, which in retrospect, I like shudder because I've become a big fan of Reaper actually, and have now taught myself a better DAW and are making, you know, even better recordings. Um, it's, it's kind of amazing that I was able to do what I did with what I had. Um, but it, it goes to show, you know, you don't need great gear to do great stuff. Now, you recorded the video, I'm assuming, on your iPhone or your... your Correct. And how did you light it? I, I It looks to me, because um, I, I do a little bit of video, but I'm nothing like uh, many people these days who learned it during quarantine. It, it almost looks like a ring light, but I could be wrong. And I cheated that because all I had was like, you know, sort of a I, I did have a light, you know, that could be used for um, like streaming and stuff. It's just um, like a panel that has lights on it. So it wasn't mm -hmm. a ring. But I wanted to, one, make it look nicer. Two, I had the ability to use kind of the the tone of the song to to make it look a little more um, kind of old school, mm -hmm. you know, play with sort of the colors and stuff. And so I actually used. Um, a setting in the video editing software I was using to to bring that slight vignette, that darker circle around the outside to mm -hmm. also then equalize the look of all of the things just in case I had moved slightly or the lighting had shifted slightly. It gave me a chance to to kind of fix my mistakes. Um, so, yeah, it's it's funny how. uh 
a lot of it was me working with what I had. Even the video editing software I had was very um, intuitive, but bottom of the barrel level stuff. You know, in retrospect, I laugh thinking what I could do now with what I know now, but still look back on it, kind of marveling at how good it looks. Well, what did you use for that? Oh, I used something called Wondershare. I'm, you know, very just freebie, you know, again, absolute, you can be an idiot and use this thing, (laughs) move it around, you know, because I I was intimidated by things like, you know, Premiere or DaVinci and didn't have a computer with enough, you know, oomph to run such a thing. You know, I needed something that could run on almost nothing. And this is this again goes back to just what you got stuck with during pandemic and you find the way out of no way. Yeah. Well, your the video quality, uh, because I, I do know the, the little bit that I've uh, read and also watched in YouTube how to it v- videos is that when you post things to YouTube, it does dumb down the quality somewhat. And so the fact that you used a phone to video it. And going through the process, I'm assuming you videoed it in 4K on your iPhone. Is that how you did it? Yeah. 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 But still, the 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 clarity um, or resolution, as a lot of people will will call it, is is really outstanding. I I was I when I first saw it, I went, "Holy crow! Look at this thing!" <laughs> I was like, "Wow!" You know, how do you do that? So, Giants, trust me, I still look back and think that to myself. Well, it. I, I'm going to let people hear a little bit, only about 30 or 45 seconds, just so that they can get an idea of what it sounds like in the beginning. Because the one thing that you have always been really, really good at, and very few performers are, is using your voice as an instrument and coupling it with, like in this song, uh, doing multiple parts of playing the bass. Although you're not playing the bass, you're you're singing the bass. <laughs> and very few people, I mean, we can do it kind of fooling around, you know, sitting here, but to actually do it and have it sound like something, you're one of the few people who can. So I want people to kind of hear this, and here it is. Thanks. Boom, 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 boom. Quarantine number one Never thought it very fun Slinging flour, baking powder And the like But suddenly they felt the need For a little levity Lift up a recipe To start that very night Gotta feed it three times a day They argued over names Doba Fett and Quarantina Let the back you get a little Lester crazy with the sourdough, baby. Take it one dough at a time, try to relax. Quarantine number two, do exactly what to do. A really tremendous job. Um, congratulations on, on doing that. That was just uh, very, very cool. Thanks. A lot of a lot of vocalists actually mentioned the vocal bass and they're like, I can't believe you kept that up that long. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> well, because some people will put it on a loop. You yeah. know, as we know, there are so many solo performers who now use looper pedals or background tracks. And as good as they, they sound, you can overuse them in my humble opinion. So the fact mm-hmm. that you could stay in time and, and keep that up for the two and a half minutes or three minutes of the song is, <laughs> is quite admirable. It really is. 
And, and I could cheat more now. I've, I've become a better editor. But at the time it was, you know, well, you better know how to do this because you don't have the skills to fix it. <laughs> well, that's, you know, that's a, a good, good question to ask you because um, I know you and Rob and Rob has a, I want to call a mad scientist type of setup in his house for recording, mm-hmm. doing videos and stuff. And he's highly sought of um, from people around the world on live streaming and things because yeah. he had to learn. And he's, he's one of those inner geeks that also happens to be a performer, but, uh, the, was it difficult for you or has it been difficult for you to go from live where you're playing with someone else who's either, you know, laying down a, a baseline, whether it's a bass or, or a drum line where you've got, you can keep time to that as opposed to going into the studio where they say, okay, you're just going to play the guitar (laughs) and track that. And then we'll go in and add the vocal later. Is it difficult for you to play to a click track or to, did you have to learn how to, to do that? I maintain everybody struggles with click. It is the great equalizer. I don't think there's a musician alive who's walked in the studio who didn't think to themselves, you know, I have pretty good rhythm mm-hmm. and then and got reminded, you know, <laughs> none of us are perfect. Even my, my drummer I use um, on the song we started with, uh, Justin Kruger, JK, did all the drumming on Message in the Mess and, and I brought him in for the stuff that I had been working on recently, is a machine. Like I brought him into the studio with Dave Mallon and Dave had not met him yet and said, oh my God, this guy's a machine. I said, yeah, that's why I brought him, you know. Even he is not perfect. You know, no one is. And so, you know, I do struggle a bit with the click, although it's it's a muscle that the more you use, the better you get. And so now I'm better. You you find certain little tricks like, uh, a, 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 you know, a very, you know, punctuated click is generally not good for me. But, you know, give me a shaker. Give me something that feels sonically more natural. Mm-hmm. And suddenly I have no problem with it at all. Like when I home record now, I'll give myself like a very basic um, programmed drum line in the background so that it has a more natural feel. And then my performance by extension becomes more natural. Um, Singing in the studio. uh, It's funny. Like I do better, you know, with the lights dimmed, like just something that then mimics the feel of live performance because I love singing to an audience. Well, and you do sing like in this little clip that I'm going to play a little bit, you do sing I, I don't want to say a cappella, although you, you do, but you will sing while playing a djembe or, mm-hmm. or you know, cajon or something along that line, which very few people can do. It's it's sort of like when you, you watch Sting perform and he's playing bass or Paul McCartney. They don't really do all the the pyrotechnic type of performances on the instrument while they're singing. They 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 might do that in between the lyrics. But when they're singing, it's like a piano player. They, they when they sing, they're just doing basic chords and maybe little fills and stuff. And then when they stop singing, that's when they do all the the, the stuff. But you seem to be very very good at being able to sing and do something like that. Uh, what do you pat your head and rub your stomach at the same time type of a thing? <laughs> and this for folks who who don't know what I mean, this is what I mean. Might help if I push the button and it stays on. There we go. Oh man, who won't have me as the last of my love And the bad bloom world's now a man, you must And the heart beats blood, yeah, the heart beats blood Like a good heart should, like a good heart does 
Well, in this clip, they, the, the band does come in, or some, some performers the, come in behind you. Yeah, the only band there is an upright bass player. All the rest is percussion. Um, I, I had a great time making that song. It really stretched uh, the engineer that I worked with, um, Joel Ackerson, who was part of a band called The Novelists out in Reno, had done some recording work for a friend of mine. And I was like, oh, my God, you know, this guy, you got to introduce me to this guy. And so, you know, I went out and had a conversation with him because, yeah, Rob and I have been playing together at this point for like 21 years. Mm. And we're, we're, we're together till the wheels fall off. I mean, it is just <laughs> a, a partnership that defies, you know, everything. We are not a couple. You know, it, it, there's a, a songwriter I love, Maya DeVitri, who has a song that has a line in it that says, uh, they tried to hang a word above us, but love doesn't cover it. Yeah. Uh, and it really is like that. You know, there's no word you could hang over us. And so once there was comfort enough, you know, where I had gone off and I had done a tour with Dar Williams and our percussionist Rowan had gone off and done a tour with the Chocolate Drops. Once there was comfort enough that people realized we could do other things and we would always come back, then it, it was this sense of maybe I can make an album that would be very not Illy Amy. You know, I love my band, but, you know, it's, it's no different than Chris Thiele having different projects. Not everything you do is the same flavor. And, and just the stuff you've played today, like, I love it all. You know, I'm never going to be a, a kind of single genre person. I think of the unifying thread as my voice, both lyric and, and tone. Like, that's the unifying thread with what I do. So I went to Joel... And I was like, I want to make this album that just serves the song. You know, I don't need it to be every song is Americana or, you know, definitely some distinct genre. I want to do what serves the song and I need somebody to help me. And so he and I, he really stretched and pushed me and I pushed him. Like I went in in the very first day, he sat down on the piano and he said, stop singing when you run out of notes. And I immediately started to make excuses like, well, I have a lot of upper register, but I don't like the tone. And he's like, that's not what I said. (laughs) And so he pushed me into using sections of my voice that I didn't feel comfortable with. And I pushed him into doing kind of things in the studio he had never done before with Good Heart, the song that you just played a clip of. I said, this is a song effectively about a kind of heart murmur. It should be almost entirely percussion. I only want maybe one melodic instrument in the background. And he had a bass player, Zach Turan, who is the single greatest bass player I've ever seen in my life. And and he is the only sort of blub of a, a, a melodic instrument. And the rest is all percussion. And I, and I love that. You know, we, we went to a friend of theirs house to raid his percussion collection he had all of this world instruments and it was like going to a candy store and we just picked things off the shelf and came back to the studio and banged on things and shook things until we got the right combination well that brings up a a question i have in somewhere in your i don't know the bio or maybe it was um, and todd i'm losing you a little bit there it's a bit of a, a plinky sort of electronic sound. So I might not have heard what you just said. Well, it brought up a question where you're talking about different types of percussion is somewhere I read on your site that yes, it really is bubble bubble wrap or something like that. Now you're still, you're still bouncy. Huh? Uh, there you go. You're back. Okay. I'm not sure exactly what happened. Nothing yep. bouncing again. Yeah. In and out, in and out. Huh? I've got five bars on my end here. All right. Well, I haven't moved, so hopefully we're good. Like I said, I, I got you now. So, well, talk to me. Explain what you when you 
when you wrote about recording with take a glance and just make sure nothing's awry. No, I'm good on my end, or at least should be. Yeah, no, I'm good on my end as well. Not sure what the can you hear me now? Maybe not. What I will do, I will call Heather right back. Why don't we try that? And this happens. I'm going to put a little music on here while we do this so that you can uh, hear something while I call her back. Sorry about that, Todd. It looks like it might have been something. Well, that's okay. Can you hear me okay now? Yeah, yeah. I, I've gotten up and walked to a different location. I don't know what that was because I haven't moved at all. So, um... Maybe, maybe, maybe one of the neighbors turned on their, um, their microwave. Yeah, God, I know. <laughs> um, sorry I, about that. No, no, no. What I did, and you can hear it in the background now, I'm playing <laughs> Even Now. I just, Which is, the, yeah, that's the one where actually he pushed me into those high vocals. So that's a good, good way to get there. Well, you know, you say pushed you into your high vocals. And having listened to you many times live and then also in recorded, whether it's Iliami or your, your solo recordings, I would never have guessed that you might be somewhat hesitant to hit high register notes. What, what brought that on? I mean, when I was young, you know, in school, I sang like soprano in choir. You would never know that listening to my speaking voice now. Um, And I still have those notes, but I think of them in tone as very choiry, you know, and they don't match the the tone of like my chest voice. And so I've always been uncomfortable with the, the variation in tone. And, you know, sometimes it takes somebody outside of your body and your hearing yourself to go, if you have these notes, you should be using them. You know, your tone is your tone. Yes, you you work on things and you craft the voice that you're looking for. But if you have it, why aren't you using it? And and so that's really where he was at. You know, that real high soprano, that, keep any you know, I don't really I don't use that stuff in Ellie Amy. Well, the you know, we as performers especially when we go into a recording studio, at least I can speak for myself, is I am never comfortable with what I hear from myself. <laughs> Everybody else, like, gosh, you did such a great job. Thank you so much. And I love listening to what you did. I'm not happy with what I did. And people go, you're too hard on yourself. It sounds great. Mm-hmm. Um, and I understand, because I don't have the high anymore either. Now, I'm a lot older than you are, but so it's partly age and partly just not, training my voice correctly over the years and things like that. The, but I totally get it. The, what I, what I have difficulty with, and it sounds like some, you, you had to have someone push you into it is the person listening, especially in a recorded type of uh, listen has no idea that you sing differently than what they're hearing at the moment. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if we think back to some of the, I mean, a Rod Stewart would be a perfect example. I mean, I'm sure the first time I heard him, I went, what's wrong with this guy's voice? And yet <laughs> that's his voice and it be, becomes endearing over time and it's unique and it somewhat makes you famous. So that is difficult for us as performers slash singers slash guitarists to, to say, oh, okay, if you, if you think it's good, I guess I have to follow along. No, and you're absolutely right. And it's it's weird to think of the difference between kind of a vocalist and and um, you know a performer or whatever, because 
there are great writers whose voices are odd. And sometimes that's a turnoff. You know, I mean, I love Leonard Cohen, but there are some Leonard Cohen songs where I'm like, oh, yes, other people needed to sing this. <laughs> you know, and there are people who would say that about Dylan or about oh, Tom yes. Waits. Yep. And these are these these very interesting voices but I've I've always hesitated on the interesting voice. I do I do like a technically proficient voice that has personality. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've definitely favored kind of that Linda Ronstadt sort of voice over maybe the sort of the more indie girl voice that to me has a lot of affectation. There is some kind of happy medium where you're delivering a a vocal performance that's meaningful without being overly theatrical. And that's, I think that's a, a real hard place to find. Well, and I think, and you mentioned some of the, the, the younger people out there, I think it's the difference between I'm going to sing it the way I, I hear it, as opposed to, gosh, I better sing this the way they want me to. So I sound mm. like her or him or whatever, which I think there's too much of now, but I understand it sells records or sells mm-hmm. Spotify's or whatever you want to call it. But that's now that brings up a good question. Someone mentioned to me one time years ago, and I'm talking in the early years of the Frederick coffee company. And I said, well, you know, that Heather Lloyd has a set of pipes. I mean, she can just belt. And they said, well, her parents are opera singers. Oh no. <laughs> and I, and I, and I've always wanted to ask you that. I had a, I had a, I believe a great grandmother. There's a story. Um, and, and I might get the, the lineage slightly wrong here, but there's a story in my family that uh, I had a great grandmother who was an opera singer that she had sung with one of the great tenors. Um, and that when she became a mom, she, she gave it up that it was not an appropriate, you know, this was not an appropriate uh, career pursuit for a mother. So she gave it up, never sang again until one of the other family members got sick and was in the hospital. And he asked her to sing some aria for him. And she sent everyone away from the room, including my grandfather, who sat with his ear to the door to hear her sing for the first time in his life. Wow. And it turned out that, you know, the family member was not dying and and she was livid, you know, apparently (laughs) after the fact. Um, But that's, that's my, uh, my familial vocal cred as it's been told to me. Now, do your parents sing? Um, my dad has a fair voice. My mom has a fair voice. Uh, it was never their pursuits. I know my dad did like musicals in high school. My mom actually was quite a dancer. Apparently, she she narrowly missed being on the the Ed Sullivan show. She wow. was tap dancer. So, um, but my mom is um, a visual artist and and extremely uh, amazing. And my brother has carried on her skill with that. My father is an exceptional woodworker and my brother has carried on that skill as well. So we all got a little something. Now, does your brother sing? Yes. He actually has a lovely voice. He was in an acapella group in um, college. So where do you think, I mean, many of us, we just, you know, I'm not speaking for myself here, but many of us, when I say many of us, the, the vocalists and the musicians of the world, singers, um, it, we're just born with it. Others, yes, you can go back in the lineage and say, oh, well, the, you, like you said, the grandmother and the mother and the father, both singers and so forth. So you get it um, honestly. But sometimes it just because neither one of my sons sing well. Their mom <laughs> yeah, does some of it. Some of it's genetics and some of it's not. I mean, uh, what um, Queen, you know. He very literally, they said, had a set of vocal cords that allowed him to almost do that, that doubled, you know, um, 
tone, you were hearing multiple tones at one time. Yeah. Freddie Mercury had a physical ability, you know, that nobody else, you know, had. But then you still cultivate that stuff. And, and we're the sum of our the sum of our influences. You know, every so often you ad- adopt some new skill or sound or tone because you've heard someone else do it. And you go, oh, I like that. That's a tool I want in my toolbox, mm-hmm. you know. And so it is an evolving thing, too. Has there ever been one of those tools that you you got from somebody else that you wanted to incorporate and it just didn't work and you were just so darn frustrated, like, I wanted this to work? Hmm. That's a really interesting question. Um, vocally, I mean, there are there are certain things I wish I could do that obviously range becomes a thing. Yeah, I have, I top out, you know, pretty high. Like I, I did, we played um, like a really beautiful concert hall and I did some little like Instagram reel of me going for the highest note I could hit, you know. Um, I think there's, there's definitely, I've been working on something. I'll be real, real. Um, I've always been nervous about the break between my chest and my head voice. And and I want a cleaner transition. And there are people who can just make these, these perfect breaks and they're so emotional. And, um, like Ma- Madison Cunningham's voice is really just stunning in that way. And the movement between, you know, sections, I'm like, yeah, that I got to work on that. And so that's still in progress. I actually now write songs sometimes where I will write a melody a little above my pay grade, you know, and force myself into into learning it. Like Good Heart, actually, the song you played with the, just the percussion and the vocal was written, at least uh, melody wise, to force the break between my chest and my head voice um, constantly. So it's like you have to get used to this. It needs to become you know, like a path worn in by a glacier, you know, this needs to become so worn into you that you don't question, you just do. And so I'm still learning how to do some of that stuff and still writing songs that force that break, you know, to make myself uncomfortable. Um, Guitar wise, I am always playing catch up. You know, I definitely, you know, don't finger pick correctly and have tried to adopt a little bit more, you know, nicer form. I even tried taking a, a kit drum lesson right before pandemic because my limb independence is not great. And I really want to get better at that. And unfortunately, I do need to take those types of lessons in person. So pandemic really squashed that. I need somebody who will literally touch my hands, move me, put me in the right position. That's not a thing I could ever do over Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's interesting when you, you're talking about how you can't, you don't finger pick correctly. And I get what you're saying, but with all the reading that I've done in the acoustic guitar magazines and and all that stuff, and and, uh, when you read some of the artists who are known as finger pickers and they go, well, I only use two fingers or I only use these three or I can, you know, and I'm thinking, gosh, it sounds great. So there's really no correct way. It's correct if it sounds good. Oh, absolutely. It's more the idea there are certain things I would love to be able to to do. I had a really awesome experience recently where even now the song that you played a little bit ago, uh, Kip and Martin, who we're you know good friends and have sung together many times. 
uh, we have a deep love of each other's music. And I recently covered a song of hers and she sent me just a little teeny clip of her covering even now mm-hmm. and hearing my guitar line played via someone who had the full kit available to them, the full toolbox. And I was like, Oh my God, there's all the notes. <laughs> you know, it was wild. Cause it was, it was, Nope, that's the guitar line, you know, distinctly. But there was so much more to it. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. So, you know, I'm a firm believer you can always add and improve and at the same time need to find a way to embrace what makes you you, you know. Well, I have read numerous uh, guitarist singers who talk about their when they recorded their songs, someone else played the guitar on the recording. And before they could go out on the road and perform their guitar, their songs yeah. solo, that the person had to teach them how to play it on the guitar. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's where studio musicians come in, because we we you know the the Wrecking Crew, which you uh, was a is oh, a yeah. one, wonderful DVD for folks folks who have never never seen it. It's the group of musicians who did all of the background music to so many of the the fifties through the nineteen seventies and even early nineteen eighties the bands that we think did the, 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 the uh, instruments did not, they had to learn how to do them in order to perform live. But all that music bed was done by, you know, anywhere from 10 to, to 30 studio musicians. Yep. And so that must be an, I'm a stickler for no, I'm, it's my song. I'm going to play the darn thing, <laughs> yep. but I'm not that good at it. So I have to really rely on other people, a good bass player, a good drummer, maybe a pianist or somebody to, to add all the frills because I only hear in my head me singing to the guitar. I'm not an yeah, arranger. There's, there's only three instances in all the songs I've ever written where when it came time to record, I relinquished the guitar, the the rhythm to someone else where uh, twice in my association with Rob, we do not actually co-write. Um, every once in a while, we will bring the song to the other person and say, hey, this one word maybe, or, you know, I feel like there's something more in this harmony. We sort of come to the other when it's done. But for my song Oracle and for my song uh, Draw You In, I was playing guitar lines that I knew were just under the technical possibility of what was available. And I said, there's something else here. And he brought them into, you know, the next level with his ability. You know, he tapes on nails. He has kind of that sort of slap bass frail banjo motion and can do, you know, these much more kind of like uh, pizzicato-esque, you know, nuanced. Um, And so in those two instances, I went to him. And when I did my solo CD message in the mess, I had actually written a song about a friend of mine who lived out there. And I was intentionally trying to mimic his playing. And so I called him and I said, I'm really trying to mimic you. Why don't you just come play it? (laughs) And so it becomes a sonic joke because the song is about him. (laughs) He's he's playing the guitar part on it because I was trying to mimic him. Well, you know, and sometimes that works, though, because what we do by trying to mimic somebody is come in from a different direction. And it's it's just a it's, it's like when you bake a cake. And or any anything, and the recipe calls for cinnamon. You go, well, I don't have any cinnamon. I'm going to throw nutmeg in there. Oh, this is great cake. It's not what my mom always made, but this is really great. It's, you know, you didn't have that, and so yep. sometimes I think that can work well. 
Yeah, no, it was great. So coming up in the, because I know that you have, oh gosh, how many live shows over the past 20 some odd years do you think you you have done both solo and with with rob or the, the band so to speak <laughs> when you do your own taxes you become intimately aware of that stuff uh in our in our hard touring days pre-pandemic we easily did between 100 and 150 shows a year um and and I would do limited solo shows in the early days there was there was one year right before pandemic that I want to say I did I did something like 50 or 60 solo shows and that was kind of like, whoa. Um, in the pandemic years, the mileage told all because generally I would put about 24 to 26,000 miles on my car every year. And the first year of pandemic, I put less than 8,000 miles on the car. Wow. And it was like, Oh, there it is. Um, so I, I just did the numbers for this past year and was back up around about 90 shows. Um, if I counted um, the live streams and stuff that I took part in. And uh, so, yeah, it's creeping back up. Um, you know, we, we work sometimes too hard. I, I'm making a little bit of an adjustment to that now while the last of sort of all of this kind of slinks away, decided that in the winter, especially I was going to choose a better quality of show and fewer. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's, that's what I've been doing, um, for the, this month and the next couple, and then hopefully returning finally to what would be like the old school schedule, which sometimes is as many as 14 gigs a month. Well, I, I guess it was at an America concert and it might've been when they were here at the, cause they, they tend to stop in, in the Frederick area or if not Frederick, somewhere close almost every year. And the, um, they were talking about, you know, they did like 157 shows last year or something like that. This is pre pandemic. And, you know, the crowd applauded, like, you know, we always in the audience, we applaud at times where the performers going, what are they applauding for now? I just said, <laughs> you know. but anyways, that's just what it is. He said, what most people don't realize is that is if for every day you perform somewhere, there may be a half day or a full day of travel sometimes mm -hmm. too. So you're out on the road, not just for that 150 days, you're out on the road for a 300 or something. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I had never until that moment really thought about that because I've never really toured. The, the, the biggest tour I've had was two gigs. <laughs> and it was like, I realized after the first one, or maybe it was the second one where I got there and they had changed their way of doing things from the time I had played there before. So I get there and it was way up in Pennsylvania somewhere. It was a three and a half, four hour drive. And I got there at the end of the night, I went up to the counter to get paid. She goes, Oh no, we don't pay performers anymore. It's all oh tips only. God. And I was like, Oh, really? How come no one told me? Well, we've been doing it for a year. I hadn't been there mm -hmm. in like three years. It's like, so there's a lot of, uh, I don't want to say downtime because you folks travel when you, when you travel with Rob or the group, you travel by automobile, I'm assuming. Yeah, exactly. I've been, I've done 47 States by car in the last 20 years. Um, and I love it that way. I mean, you know, yes, I, I love the music and the music becomes a vehicle for, for travel and for, you know, being kind of touristy in a way that doesn't feel, you know, silly. Like you're, oh, but you know, I don't know how to, I don't know how to travel if I'm not working. Like it becomes that way. I went on my, you know, honeymoon with my husband and he's like, do you need to take an instrument? And I'm like, no, <laughs> you know, um, 
So uh, I, I love that. And, and that's been hard in the last few years because I, I miss that. Sure. And we'll pile it on. We don't take a lot of days off if we can help it. Like we did, I want to say like a 42-day tour all the way, you know, big donut all the way to the West and back. This was maybe 2000. This might be 2017. I'm having a hard time almost remembering. Um, and we... We worked all but maybe six days of that run. You know, we packed it tight because if we're going to do that kind of travel with three people, you know, it's it's a lot of um, it's a lot of input cost. Yeah. And that was when gas wasn't what it costs now, you know. So we definitely, you know, often work too hard. And I say there's three types of gigs. There's the gigs you do for money. There's the gigs you do for love. And there's the gigs you do for strategy. Every once in a while, you get two of the three, and and every once in a while, there's a unicorn that's all three. Um, but you know, every one of those has its place, and and it's like I started at the beginning of this podcast saying I would never want to become so comfortable in one type of gig that I lost kind of the edge and the ability to play those other types. So we mm-hmm. don't do as many of the bar gigs now, but we love the brewery gigs, and I love like the winery gigs, and then you know I've got. I've got some really nice ones coming up. That's like a, an evening with, you know. <laughs> well, speaking of ones coming up yeah, on February 4th, and we are taping this on the 26th of January. So it's only a couple of weeks away, not even really. Mm-hmm. It's just one week away. Uh, an evening with Heather at the New Spire Arts stage area, which is a car across the street from the Weinberg where you opened for Gordon Lightfoot. Mm-hmm. The um, And that's going to be really, really cool. I have not been in that, they call it the Black Box Theater. I mm-hmm. was in it years ago when Bob Sima had his first CD release party there, but it was a totally different setup. Now, evidently, and I, I've been trying to get over there, and it's never worked out timing-wise, so I'm hoping, 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 hoping I can get to um, your performance on the 4th. And then Boy. after that, on Saturday, February 11th, you're going to be performing, Illy Amy is, with Earhart and my good friend and wonderful person, Ron McFarland and his mm-hmm. group. That'll be a fun show. Yeah, I'm excited for them both. And and it's nice to be able to do two shows like that because they have almost nothing to do with one another. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. like I'm going to go play a solo show by myself and be, you know, twinkly and storytelly and stuff like that. And then I'm going to go play like a rock show with loot. You know, those two shows <laughs> can't be more different. And I love that. That's the way I want my musical life to be. Yeah. Now, how do you prepare for a solo show differently than you pre- prepare for a Illy Amy show? If it's weird being alone, I require a lot more preparation because you don't have somebody you can turn to and go, well, what do you think? Or let's riff on this, you know, at this moment, it's got to be certain aspects have to be calculated so that you can be free in the moment. Mm-hmm. And so I am much more, um, worshipful of the set list. Like when Illyami has a set list, it's, you know, a suggestion at best. Most mm-hmm. of the time when people come up and they're like, Oh, can I have this? And like, it's not accurate, but sure. You know, um, when I do the set list for my solo shows, they're like ironclad written in stone, um, both for tuning, for talking, for time. You know, when I opened for Gordon Lightfoot, the stage manager was like 29 minutes. And I'm like, I got you, you know, I know exactly what I'm going to do and how long it's going to take. Yeah. Um, and, and so when I'm by myself, I really am much more um, aggressive about that kind of planning. 
And it also gives you freedom to do things without having to turn to a band and go, I'm going to do this thing we haven't played in five years. Um, and I, I do, I get bored, you know, I never want to play like exactly the same show twice. So I try to dig up something you had to be there for. Um, like I'm going through actually right now in preparation for the show and looking at some older songs or some things that I almost never play live and figure, you know, I gotta, I gotta bring them into this so people can be like, Oh wait, you know, she played this thing. She never plays this thing. Um, and so that's that's really where that preparation comes in. It's maybe learning, relearning a couple of older songs, really off the beaten path stuff, and making a set list that becomes kind of a story. You know, I, I'm an ex-journalist. Um, I, I became a songwriter because it was the way to sort of make all of the parts of me go together. And the shows then should become a kind of story. And and when you're alone, it's a lot easier to do something like that because you don't have to wrangle or practice or or get everybody on the same page about how long you're going to talk about something. And so that's great. But, you know, band shows are significantly less stressful in a way because you have this entire company of great people around you who are all really funny and you can trust to be, you know, exceptional and interesting on the fly. Now, that brings up a question regarding the band i i'm assuming that there are a number of things that come into play to help decide how many of you actually are in the band that particular and one is the size of the venue two would be um you know the pay scale of that particular venue mm -hmm. but how do you go about and i'm and i'm sure not everyone's always available on that date the um, how do you go about choosing who's going to be a portion, a part of that band? Let's say if you had um, five gigs in a row over the course of, you know, three weeks and the venues are all about the same size, the, the pay's all about the same. How would you go about choosing or is it, hey, we have these dates. Are you available? Which ones are you not? And so forth. So we can kind of plan around it. How do you handle that? Absolutely. A mix of both. Um, we have one band member who's in an extremely high stress, difficult job and cannot bend his schedule beyond, you know, leave. He has had to ask for well in advance. Sure. And so our, our big band shows, we work around him as much as we are possible. Mm -hmm. Um, so keys, our keys player is the one that is the hardest. And we make a big deal of the, the six piece shows where we're really able to, to have us all. That's usually for things like, um, we've done a live at five, you know, where we get to have the full band with kit. Mm -hmm. Um, that's then the second consideration is, are you somewhere where it benefits with kit and can actually hold it? Um, so Joey, our kit percussion player is then brought in if it's, it's a big, you know, outdoor festival thing or, we have enough space to fit all of us on the stage sonically and spatially. Um, then nowadays, really where the touring outfit is, is it's going to be either a quartet or a trio. One, because we can fit that, you know, tightly into one car. And two, because it represents kind of what we what we'd consider to be the the fullest you know, representation of the band uh, without, you know, kit and keys. So Rowan Corbett. Um, trades off percussion with me. Kristen Jones plays cello. Rob is, uh, you know, lead guitars and stuff like that. And then I can play guitar and, and switch off with percussion. 
And with that quartet, we've even picked up the the barbershop quartet. You know, Rowan learned, you know, the most difficult part of um, of the thing that I wrote. And so we can actually perform that live, which I never thought would happen. One, I thought the band would not be interested in it. And two, I didn't think they could do it. Um, and so now when we travel as a quartet, we're able to do that barbershop quartet live. And it blows minds because we're doing it in the same set as like much more rockin' stuff. Um, so, so we like to travel with the quartet now when we can. The trio is the the smallest outfit we would tour with at this point. So the Andrews sisters live on. Exactly. I couldn't believe it. I, I love it. It's great. You know, people really love it. They get a kick out of it. And even though, thankfully, we are retreating from that experience, people remember that experience. So it probably will live on for a while. Well, this has been fascinating. And you are a wonderful conversationalist and a phenomenal musician slash singer slash songwriter and, and bandmate. Um, because I know that, uh, um, having talked with Rob in his wild and crazy way, I mean, he's just, he's hilarious as you Mm -hmm. well know the, um, and he's, you know, he doesn't say it necessarily, he does say it, but he says it between the lines and how much he appreciates you being his musical partner. So congratulations on a, what is it, 25 years, 24 years? I'm not quite there yet. I think we're 21. We can drink. Our well, band can drink. There you go. But the, and I look forward to hopefully seeing you on the fourth. And if I can't, just remember that I wish I could be there. Oh, thank you so much, Todd. And this has been wonderful. You have a wonderful rest of your day. From what you said, you've got laundry to do. You have to plan dinner. Plus, I'm sure you're booking (laughs) shows and then you're going to the concert tonight. So have a fun time. Thank you. All right. And we'll talk to you hopefully in person soon. Yes. All right. Bye-bye now. Bye. Well, that was Heather Lloyd, Heather Aubrey Lloyd. And we're going to finish the show with her song off the A Message in a Mess CD which is ever-growing, from what I understand, over time. And this is a song titled Pollock. Pigeons sit lined up like Ellipses on a street lamp like Morse code Sparrows are all notes All the staff strung up between Telephone poles And if they could not say Could this be their song written out And if they Don't. 
understand it But there's a message in the mess I've been trying my best to decipher During a reincarnation Something lost in the translation Now an eyesore What the car crashed on Comes back not quite whole But full of good intention Trapped inside The Wish Me Mop Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series is produced by me, Todd Middle Initial C. Walker, at the Wish Me Mop Music Studio in Frederick, Maryland, and sometimes on location. All music on the podcast is played by permission from the artist. If you're enjoying the series, please feel free to share the link. Wispymopmusic.podbean.com, and Podbean is spelled P-O-D-B-E-A-N, or you can find the show on either iTunes or Apple podcast. And thanks again to Heather Aubrey Lloyd for a wonderful conversation. We'll catch you next time.